This podcast is made possible not just partly, but entirely by the support of listeners just like you. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, NPR, The Daily Show, Ring of Fire, Slate Magazine, and The Young Turks, with a bonus clip today for our iPhone app users from green.tv. Jordan, welcome to the show. Now, as I said, the theme of this week's show is money, and we're going to ask you to play a new game we've invented for the occasion, and we're calling it Lifestyles of the Rich and Despicable. <laughs> all right. All right. You're a lawyer. You know all over this stuff. You're good. Um, you see, we're full of those. Yeah. Well, never have so few made so much money wrecking the economy as in 2008. We're going to give you clues as to how three financial tycoons were amusing themselves while you and I were fighting the other hobos for that last can of beans. <laughs> your job is to guess correctly what they were doing. Do that two times out of three, you'll win Carl's voice in your home answering machine. Ready to play? Let's do it. Well, we'll start with one of the first companies to collapse causing that crisis. We're talking about the investment bank Bear Stearns. Carl, tell us about their CEO, James Kane. Well, this tycoon takes his pleasures at the table. He's not eating, he's playing. And after trumping his opponents, he likes to kick back turn on the black light poster, and play a hand or two with a bridge partner named Mary Jane. <laughs> Turns out, according to the Wall Street Journal anyway, that Mr. Kane may not have noticed his bank was imploding because he was too busy playing bridge and doing what? Smoking weed. You bet. <laughs> Looking back on it, Bear Stearns never should have done their executive recruiting from the guys selling bootlegs outside a Grateful Dead concert. <laughs> Uh, before he became a multimillionaire titan of finance, uh, Mr. Kane was a competitive bridge player, and even as his company lost billions of dollars, he still found time to play at tournaments, disappearing for days or weeks at a time during crises. And the journal said, many people saw the 60-something Kane light up a doobie after a hard day at the table. He denied one specific allegation, but when pressed if he ever indulged, he said, whoa, man, you've got a real questiony aura. I... <laughs> You know, the, uh, the story about him smoking dope is, is actually kind of reassuring because when you look at that mess, these people are educated, experienced, and all that just completely drive this thing into the ground. And it's, it's somehow um, comforting to think that maybe they were just stoned. Yeah. It's like... <laughs> that it wasn't malice, it wasn't greed, it was just pure dope-headedness. Like buying up all those troubled assets, it was just a form of the financial munchies. <laughs> Dude, I could, I could eat a whole bag of some prime loans right now. <laughs> All right, Jordan, that was very good. Now, the next to fall as the economy imploded was the nearly century-old investment bank Merrill Lynch, whose demise as an independent company was overseen by its CEO, one John Thane. Carl, tell us about Mr. Thane. Well, Peter, he's not the kind of guy to let the collapse of the American financial system get him down. He's got an $80,000 couch made from real unicorn leather <laughs> and a Queen Anne chair made from Queen Anne. <laughs> Thane became infamous because while his bank was going under, he spent $1.2 million of company money doing what? Uh, redecorating his office. Exactly right. Everybody knows it's a truism in business. You can't destroy one of the significant institutions of Wall Street while sitting behind a déclassé desk. John Thane was the highest-paid executive in America. He earned $82 million a year, yet he submitted more than a million dollars of receipts for furniture for reimbursement. A few months later, Merrill had been bought by Bank of America and absorbed $20 billion in taxpayer bailout money. To Mr. Thane's credit, he did say he did have a regret about the whole thing. He said, quote, if I had that to do over again, I'd furnish it in Ikea. You know, I have a whole theory about the Merrill Lynch problem. Yeah. Remember back in the day, they used to be Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner, and Smith? Mm -hmm. I think Pierce, Fenner, and Smith were the smart guys. Yeah, whatever happened to them? <laughs> <laughs> All right, Jordan, one more to go. One of the most notorious failed companies of the crisis was AIG, the insurance giant that ended up being bailed out to the tune of $100 billion or more of our money. It ran through CEOs during the crisis like it did taxpayer cash, and Carl is going to tell you 
about the last of them. The new CEO of AIG works hard and plays hard. Actually, we're not sure if he works hard. <laughs> he doesn't care about the S&P 500. He wants SPF 30. So what was the first bold move Robert Ben Moshe took after taking over troubled AIG in the summer of 2009? Uh, took a trip to somewhere warm, I'm guessing the Bahamas? Well, close enough. He went on vacation immediately. So imagine your team's losing big in the late innings, and you call in your star closer, and he runs out onto the field right past the mound to the concession stand for some nachos. <laughs> Robert Ben Moshe offered the excuse that he'd been planning the trip for a while. And sure, the company had just been given billions of dollars in U.S. taxpayer funds, but Carnival Cruises offers an endless chocolate fountain at the dessert buffet. <laughs> Once he got back from his trip, Ben Moshe announced that the bonuses that were still being given to AIG executives were, quote, criminal. No, wait, he didn't say that. He said the bonuses were fine. Telling people about them was criminal. <laughs> Some of the problems Lehman Brothers executives were trying to shuffle off the books were those troubling things known as toxic assets. Toxic assets threatened to bring down the global economy, hundreds of billions of dollars worth of home mortgages packaged into complicated bonds, and no one wanted to touch them. Well, now these things are starting to move, and our Planet Money team has been wondering what's become of them. They thought the best way to find out was to actually buy a toxic asset. David Kestenbaum and Hannah Jaffe-Walt report. There's no store you can go to to buy toxic assets. You have to know a guy, and we know a guy. So, uh, my name's Witt. Witt Solberg. He used to work on Wall Street. Now he set up his own shop, Mission Peak Capital, here in his hometown, Kansas City. Witt and a dozen guys sit at desks with their tools. Two to four computer monitors, three to five bags of potato chips, Snapple, chewing tobacco. And all Witt does all day is look at those monitors, spreadsheets, numbers, mortgage data, evaluating toxic assets, and sometimes buying one. But the thing is, you don't always know what you're getting. It compares us to buying a cow at an auction. The big black Angus cow that everybody wants, we're not buying that cow because it's too expensive. Uh, we want the cow that kind of got a, a wounded leg, but she might produce a few more calves for us and uh, is cheap. So why don't we run the 051 MV8? Which starts searching for a bond we might want to buy. And what searching looks like is checking your email. Brokers keep sending him announcements about which toxic assets are for sale today. One says, cheaper, super senior steel. Bobby sends a lot of email, Cliff and Dwayne. And to figure out which bond might be a good buy for us, Wit has a computer model, basically a very fancy spreadsheet named Brandy, named after his wife who built the thing. Brandy takes all the information on all the mortgages and tries to make sense of it. If you bought a home in the last 10 years, it's possible your mortgage is in here. And Brandy, the model, is asking these questions about you. Where is your house? Are you making your mortgage payments? Who made you the loan? She does this with thousands of mortgages. Meanwhile, Wit is scanning the screen yelling, what's Brandy telling us here? Oh, Brandy likes it. Oh, wow, check out Brandy's loss severity there. Around lunchtime, Wit finds a bond he likes for us. It's a type of bond called an omelet bond. That's an acronym for Option One Mortgage Loan Trust. Wit thinks we should offer to buy the omelet for half a cent on the dollar. In other words, less than 1% of its original value. Wit calls one of those brokers who sent him the emails, a guy named Cliff, tells him, half a cent on the omelet, and then we wait. Finally, Cliff calls back. Hey, Cliff. Hey. What's happening? So that omelet bond? Yeah. They're seeing high teens on that. <laughs> High teens, 17, 18 cents on the dollar. More than 30 times higher than what we bid. That's, that's bull****. That's ridiculous. Wait, so what, what happened with the omelet? 
Somebody oh. bought it for high teens? That's what they're telling the trader. And you bid half a cent? Yeah. So there's real disagreement about, about what these things are worth. There's huge disagreement. I mean, honestly, this is not uncommon. After our omelet failure, we move on. Wick gets excited about another bond. He looks through his fancy spreadsheet. It has big loans, meaning big houses, McMansions in California. But he only has minutes to make an offer on this one, and there isn't enough data to evaluate it. So Wick does something that makes me kind of nervous. He yells, print the book. The book is the prospectus, a 604-page document no one ever expected anyone to read. It describes the bond in excruciating detail. As the printer tray fills up, I realize I'm staring at an historical record of the entire financial crisis. It's all here on these pages. Vaporized companies, people struggling to pay their mortgages, and some horribly complicated logic describing which bondholders get paid in which order, how much, under which conditions. Wit hunches over the pages with three highlighters and a pen, circling stuff, turning the pages quickly, time running out. And then he stops. There's a hidden time bomb on page 136. <laughs> You're laughing. That doesn't seem like a good sign. <laughs> In the event of insolvency of Lehman Brothers, payments due under the interest rate cap. Dude, this is a disaster. This is a disaster. The disaster is the deadly interest rate swap. You don't need to know what that is. It's bad. We're not buying it. We go on like this for two days, and finally we find her. A beautiful, totally toxic asset at what Witt thinks is a good price. $36,000. The original sticker price? was a lot more. $2.7 million. Meaning that's how much money, in theory, is supposed to be coming in from yeah, all the mortgages. What, yeah. Wow. wow, so someone originally was someone was holding it, expecting it to be worth a lot more money. Yeah, somebody, a, a human being or an institution paid $2.72 million for this within very recent history. And you bought it for $36,000. That's right. We buy a piece from WIT for $1,000. It's going to be our encyclopedia of the financial crisis. So what the heck did we buy? Our toxic asset, she has 2,000 mortgages all over the place, a lot in the worst-hit parts of the country, California, Arizona, Florida. Here's a guy, pretty nice Sarasota place, right? You can tell a zip code. Yeah, there's a zip code, golf course community, maybe a cul-de-sac, something like that. A lot of the people in our bond are really struggling. Almost half are behind on their mortgage payments. 15% of our homes are already in foreclosure. And at some point, those homes will be taken over and sold for a loss. Every time that happens, the bond shrinks. At some point, our part of the bond disappears entirely. But until then, we get a little money every month from people paying off their mortgages. We just got a check for $141. If we keep getting checks till Thanksgiving, we could double our money. What's the worst thing that could happen? Uh, next month, they sell all the houses and you, you get stuck with nothing. <laughs> um. So now we're toxic asset investors. What does that mean? Are we helping unclog some big bank's balance sheet? Are we helping the homeowners? No. You're not helping these people. If you have any reason to purchase this product, the reason is to make money. But are, we, are we helping the people who owned this stuff that we bought no. it from? No, because what would have happened was that they'd have to recognize that loss. Ninety-nine. They, bought, they would have bought it for 100 and now they've just recognized the fact that they've lost, lost 99 I see. So what we're actually doing is we're saying to whoever holds this... You think you don't know what it's worth, or maybe you think it's worth whatever, and we think it's worth two cents on the dollar. Yeah, you've raised your hand, and you said it's worth a penny and a half. And by the way, that's better than nobody raising their hand at all. Of course, there could be a reason no one was raising their hands. It could be worth less than a penny on the dollar. However this investment turns out, we'd like to meet some of our partners in the pages of this gigantic financial transaction. If you bought a home in 2005 in Sarasota zip code 34232. Or if you've owned our toxic asset, QCIP number 41161PUA9, let us know.
My guest tonight, the best-selling author of The Blind Side and Moneyball. His new book is called The Big Short, Inside the Doomsday Machine. Please welcome back to the program, Michael Lewis. Have a seat, sir. I'll tell you, this one, uh, it's called The Big Short, Inside the Doomsday Machine. It, it takes a look at the sort of financial meltdown from a completely different perspective, which is the few people that actually made money. And saw it coming. Saw it coming and, and, and made money off it. Yeah, there was this strange thing, I think in the public mind, the financial crisis is what happened in 2008, Lehman Brothers failing and Bear Stearns failing and so on and so forth. But in fact, all the really bad stuff happened well before then, that all the bad subprime loans and all the bad bonds and all the risk was placed between 05 and 07. And nobody said anything about it. I mean, the, the financial system sort of organized itself around this giant bet. And most of the financial system was betting on subprime mortgages. And a very small handful of, of investors, I mean, 10 to 12, made a giant bet against them. Well, this and, guy, you, and you, you write Mike Burry, the, the guy's one eye. He has a glass eye and he has Asperger's syndrome. And he, and he knows more, And he seems to know more about what's going on in the, the economy than the chairman of the Federal Reserve and the, and the secretary of the Treasury. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, a, it's, a, it's the in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king story. Yes. Right? Literally. Yes, yes. He's making bets in 2005. He's saying, boy, this doesn't look right. They're bundling all these subprime loans and they're saying they're AAA when they all look like garbage to me. And he walks around making $5 million bet, $5 million bet, and then he goes... Man, maybe 10, maybe 100. And he gets a billion dollars bet against this. Yes. It's a stranger story than that because he was really just a stock market investor. He just wanted to, he was, he was supposed to be a value investor in the stock market looking for cheap companies. And he realized that this thing that was going on in the housing market with subprime lending was going to affect everything. And he could no longer bet, he could no longer invest money in stocks in good conscience. So he ends up with this thing, this giant wager against the subprime mortgage market. And he's putting on bets with Goldman Sachs and Deutsche Bank and all the big Wall Street firms. That's the craziest part of this book. He's betting this with Goldman Sachs and Deutsche Bank and all these guys, and they're like, sure, sure, we'll take that stupid bet. Then around 2007, they start sniffing it out, and, and they start calling him. A little earlier than that. 2006. Yeah, a little earlier than that. And, but not all of them. I mean, look, when this thing goes bad, when the bombs go off in 2008, most of the Wall Street firms are on the other side of those bets. AIG is on the other side of those bets. So very few of the firms actually figured it out. I mean, they, the, the problem with Wall Street, these big Wall Street firms, generally, is that they became the dumb money at the poker table. And how that happened is, a, is an incredible story. But basically... I, mean, I think basically what happened is that they figured out there's an awful lot of money to be made lending money to people who shouldn't be lent money. And, that, and when you do that, you create lots of risk. And the only way you get that risk out there and get people to take it is to disguise it. So they, they got really good at disguising the risk, and they got so good, they sort of disguised it for themselves. They fooled themselves. Sort of like if you tell a lie often enough, you start to believe it. And that's, I think it's basically what happened with so Wall Street. So the giant financial markets in this country are, in, in, in essence... All George Costanza. <laughs> All of them. They've told themselves a lie. They now believe it. Yeah. The incredible thing to me is, so Goldman gets wind of this, and they all start realizing, oh, we've got to hedge this bet, too. Once they get wind that the subprime market is going to collapse, rather than intervene and stop it, they just... Oh, no, it doesn't occur to anybody. I know what you're, no, it doesn't occur to anybody to say, this is, we, this is wrong, we better, we better stop doing right. this. Oh, no, no, The no. thing we've been doing is wrong. No, that doesn't compute. That kind of, that doesn't, that's, that's not a thought that would occur to a Wall Street trader. No, they thought, they thought, this is a good bet, we'll make money from it. Uh, the, it at no point... At no point does anybody say, this is wrong, uh, we've we got to stop it. The exception is, there's a little bit of an exception. The people who made the bets, these handful of investors who sort of figured it out, right. they were screaming to high heaven. And nobody listened to them because they had one eye and asked. Let me ask you a question. But I thought they were king. I know betting short didn't cause this or do anything else, but it seems like we should not have a financial system where you could profit uh, cheering for its demise. Um, you mean you shouldn't have people who are short sell short sellers? I don't know. It seems you know that maybe that you. May, it feels unseemly. You know I play crap sometimes, I can understand and there's that. always a guy betting against the table, right. and that guy 
is usually a dick. <laughs> but you, should we be able to have dicks in the, the financial market? System, the financial system works beautifully if the dicks are smart. It's the problem is when the dicks are stupid. It, 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 that's when it really doesn't work. If and the problem thinking, in this case is yeah. the dicks in most cases were stupid. And they, and, is and it that so, they're stupid? Isn't that letting them off the hook? Is it that they're no, stupid or that they are? They thought they outsmarted the market and they got way too greedy. The people in the Wall Street firms, yeah. they they actually they actually forgot they'd rigged the market. I mean, they basically forgot they rigged the market. The people, the shorts, to come back right. to the shorts, they're actually important, the people who bet against things, because it's the only incentive in the system to bring bad news into the system. I mean, Lehman Brothers, we've just learned that Lehman Brothers was cooking its books. They're, the only person who was shouting about that is David Einhorn, who was a short seller. But what about, what, somebody just owed for David Einhorn. <laughs> That is an inside baseball crowd. Yeah. <laughs> what about, you know, the idea of bringing shorts into the system, what about bringing reality into the system? And that way, the, the hedge against irrational exuberance is reality. You're complicating my brain. <laughs> I mean, but, I, I, Damn you, I, I Lewis! I don't know what you just said, but, but it doesn't sound right. Uh, <laughs> and if we can just come back to it another time, we can sort it out. I would actually like that, because if you could explain, you, you seem like you could explain to me shorts and make it not seem like a Underwear. corruption of, yeah, exactly. Right. Uh, the Big Short, unbelievable story on the bookshelves now. You got to get it. Michael Lewis. Maybe you want to give me kisses sweet, but only for one night with no repeat. You can now support this podcast as easily as by shopping online. The next time you need to make a purchase of just about anything, simply visit bestofleft.com and use our amazon.com search box to find what you're looking for. The search box is located right on the side of the website. You can't miss it. When you make your purchase, we get a little commission. It's just another effortless, completely free way for you to help keep the show going strong. Thanks for your support. Joe, the great thing about Freefall, besides it's just packed with great information, is that it's easy to understand why we're in a freefall. It was so well done. It was so well presented. Uh, anybody that I don't care how little they know about economics, this is easy to understand. Look, let me ask you this. Part of the free fall is that Wall Street shifted toxic assets to banks and pension funds, and now they've been able to shift that same toxic trash to taxpayers. And I suppose we begin the discussion, what does that accomplish in the big picture? <laughs> well, what it does is accomplishes uh, moving off of the, the bank's balance sheet, uh, shifting the losses from the shareholders and, and bondholders to the taxpayers. What I, I uh, try to explain is sort of a zero-sum game. Uh, somebody wins, somebody loses. The, the, the gains to one side are equal to the losses to the other. And what the banks manage to do is to move a lot of the losses away from them onto us. Okay, so you've got uh, you you have Congress now, and it seems that uh, it, it seems like they don't get it, they don't understand it. We, we're still talking about Ben Bernanke being the guy who's going to lead us through all this. And my memory is that he was in the Frankenstein laboratories on Wall Street when all this was invented. And uh, although he holds himself out as being kind of the scholar of the Great Depression, he it kind of fell down around him. So I'm wondering if Congress doesn't get it, Bernanke doesn't get it, Obama seems too focused on letting other people tell him what to do. What, what is it that we really can do about it? I mean, it, it doesn't seem to be getting across that all that's happened is this big shift of responsibility. Well, I mean, the good news is that the Obama administration finally has recognized that if we're not going to have a repeat of this problem, we have to rein in the banks. We have to particularly rein in the big banks, stop their uh, excessive risk-taking, do something about the proprietary trading, the conflicts of interest of the RIFE. What's so interesting is the contrast between 
the head of the Bank of England, who has been very forceful and effectively saying, if you're too big to fail, you're too big to be. And almost, <laughs> I, know, I, lo- I love that characterization. Uh, and, and almost complete silence on that issue from the U.S. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, they continue to almost take the stance, oh, you know, this is just one of those things that happened. Uh, it's one of those 100-year floods, a tsunami. Mm. But uh, it wasn't something that just happened. This was man-made. It was something that didn't happen to them. It's something that they did to us. Well, as you follow your your book, again, I I can't tell you it's uh, it's just excellent, so well done. But as you follow it, uh, it's it's very evident. Government becomes they're in the role of the new bearer of all this last resort bad toxic risk. And uh, so in order, in order, I think, to change that, I think there has to be almost a groundswell by the public uh, opinion, but the public has to get it. They have to understand the, the, what a swap was, what a synthetic was, what a CDO was, how it took money from the thin air and then shifted this huge risk to pensions and to the government and now to taxpayers. But I, I don't know that they, they do understand that. I think, you know, you, you almost uh, – I do Fox. Uh, I'm the only liberal, I think, that appears on Fox <laughs> sometimes. And sometimes when I talk about the issue of why a synthetic was just – was really nothing more than the creation of a Frankenstein laboratory, it's their eyes glaze over. It's not, it's not that they – it's not that they don't want to get it. They just don't get it. Well, you know, some aspects of this, though, I think are are pretty easy to understand, and it's really the point that you made in the beginning. It's not capitalism. It's what I call ersatz capitalism, fake capitalism. Mm-hmm. When you socialize losses, you shift over the losses to the government, and you privatize the gain. Now, no economy based on that principle of socializing losses and privatizing gains is going to work well. So, you know, it's not uh, a lot of the conservatives talk about, well, you're abandoning capitalism. The fact is, it's these bailouts that represent the abandonment of the principles of capitalism and of a market of respon- uh, market economy, you know, uh, systems of of responsibility. If you do something, you have to bear the consequences. If you don't do that. Systems of incentives just don't work. Yeah, but the too-big-to-fail notion really takes the risk out of everything because they say, look, uh, we're the biggest guy on the block. We can do all of these risky things. We can take all the chances we, that we want. And when all the smoke clears, we're going to be okay because the government is going to, to, to take care of us. That, that is the threat that maybe is the easiest to sell. It's like owning a you know, mom-and-pop store and you, know, you, you just completely you, you miss the basics of good business and you say, well, you know, somebody's going to bail me out. But, the, but mom and pop was never bailed out, not even close to being bailed out in this scenario, were they? No, actually, 140 banks went. We let go bankrupt uh, last year in 2009. Uh, but the big banks we poured money into, you know, without stop. And if we hadn't done that, they they too would have gone bankrupt. So the fact of the matter was that uh, with these too big to fail banks, uh, when they gamble and win, they walk off, pocket the money, pay big bonuses. When they lose. The taxpayer picks up the tab. Yeah, pretty, pretty good business if you can get it. One, one thing that you do in the book I think is just so well done is you, you talk about the idea that there really is no more relationship between a, lindo, a lender and a borrower. I mean, it's this agency notion that th- these are just th- these are numbers out there. We don't have faces. Nobody's come to my shop and said, look, here's my mortgage. Let me tell you about me. It, it's this vacuum that the system is working in and in, in, in all of this stuff that's been bundled up and sold as something with as value there, there is no relationship between the person selling it or the person buying it is there that's right and the securitization really uh, depersonalized uh, the whole lending process and interestingly uh, that had two consequences which were disastrous one of them is that uh, it meant that the originator of the mortgage uh, no longer had could cared about whether he was originating a good mortgage. Right. Uh, you know, 
I, I call it, it, it was based on the principle of a greater fool, that, that there's a fool boring somewhere in the world, uh, somewhere, and then I can sell off my lousy mortgage to him. And globalization had opened up a global marketplace for fools, and we sold about 40% of them to Europe. Well, and, 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 and things would have been so much worse here if we hadn't done that. But the second problem that we're seeing in spades now is that it's very difficult to restructure the mortgages. You know, it used to be if you ran into problems, uh, you could go down to your neighborhood bank or you could explain, you could uh, say, you know, I'm just having a problem, temporary unemployment. Uh, you can make a judgment and decide which, when, when to restructure, when to, to give you a few months extra, and, and when to be tough. You got to know when the whole story is called, Is 2010 Going to Be 1994 or 1934? The Economy is Recovering, which means Democrats may not get routed in November. And it's written by Daniel Gross. Many Republicans expect November to be a repeat of 1994, when popular anger against an overreaching reformist Democratic Party enabled the GOP to pick up 56 seats in the House of Representatives. But Republicans might be well advised to look back at an earlier midterm election, 1934. When elected in 1932, Franklin D. Roosevelt swept into office along with the Democratic Congress just after the economy fell apart. They quickly stabilized the system, injected deficit-fueled stimulus into the economy, and passed far-reaching reforms. Then, as now, Republicans and talk radio demagogues accused the president of being an un-American, currency-debasing socialist. They promised that all of Roosevelt's efforts, from the Civilian Conservation Corps to the Securities and Exchange Commission, would fail. But the recession ended in March of 1933, and the economy grew by 16.9% and 11% in 1933 and 1934, respectively. The unemployment rate started to come down from sickeningly high levels. In October 1934, the Dow Jones Industrial Average stood at 95, up nearly 90% from February of 1933. And in November 1934, the Democrats increased their already large majorities, picking up nine seats in both the House and Senate. History doesn't repeat, but it sometimes rhymes. In 2009 and 2010, Democrats passed Keynes-inspired stimulus efforts and pushed through health care reform over the uniform and frequently shrill opposition of Republicans. The economy stabilized and a recovery began to gain traction. Fast forward to October 2010. Assuming recent trends continue, the U.S. economy will be in its sixth quarter of GDP growth and the rancor of the health care debate will be a distant memory. While not producing nearly enough jobs, the economy will be producing a sufficient number to bring the unemployment rate down. Should the stock market simply move sideways, it'll still be 70% higher than its March 2009 nadir. Is this a setup for an electoral wipeout? It's the economy, stupid, has become a political cliché. But both number crunchers and political scientists have shown that economic trends in the months leading up to elections can have a great power in forecasting outcomes. Given the deep recession that started in January 2008 and the collapse of the financial system in the fall of 2008, John McCain and the Republicans were toast. When he plotted polling data on trust in government against growth in disposable income, John Sides, a political scientist at George Washington University, found a high degree of correlation. The economy explains about 75% of the variance in trust, he says. 
When the economy is doing well, people are less disgusted with Washington, and they approve of the president and their senator more. As a general rule, the president's party loses seats in the midterm. But University of Denver political scientist Seth Maskett, who has charted income growth in the three quarters before the fall midterm campaign season over the last 16 cycles, found that if the economy seems to be growing and people are making more money, they tend to reward the party that's in power a little more. Translation, an expanding economy over the next seven months could lessen projected Democratic losses. Yale economist Ray Fair has developed a relatively simple and highly accurate economic model for predicting what percentage of the total vote parties will receive in presidential and congressional elections. It relies on inflation and economic growth over the seven quarters before the election. Fair, who has a somewhat optimistic take on growth for 2010, says Democrats are likely to get a 51.6% voting share this fall. The Democrats are not going to gain seats, he says, but it doesn't look like there will be anything like a disaster. One caveat. High unemployment and housing, factors not considered in FAIR's model, may play an outsized role in people's feelings about the economy. And perception can matter as much as the underlying economic reality. Running against one-party control may be a winner in the fall campaign. But running against a weak economy? Perhaps not. On CNBC, Jack Welch, the rock-ribbed Republican, former CEO of General Electric, detailed the signs of revival at the companies with which he works. If they're counting on the poor economy alone, he said, Republicans are going to get an awful shock. that really this this notion to where, uh, gee, uh, we can't really blame all of this on deregulation, that uh, that you really need to still believe in the idea that we have need to have as much freedom as we can to make profits, that that's coming from Wall Street, that's coming from the bankers. And nevertheless, you still have the Ayn Rand mentality. You still, uh, you know, you still got Geithner and Summers, who are obviously students of Ayn Rand, that still, I, I, I'm not convinced they've bought into the idea that that's a bad thing. I mean, I don't. I, I think they still, in the back of their mind, are thinking, like Bernanke, well, they're going to work their way out of this. Let's let them do it. Let's not overregulate right now. What's your yeah. take on that? Well, I think it's a fundamental mistake. You know, there's a difference between uh, if you go to Las Vegas and you gamble uh, and you, you you lose money, you suffer, your family suffers, but that's the end of the story. But the banks, when they gamble and they lose, we all suffer. Mm-hmm. Our economy suffers, uh, homeowners suffer, workers suffer, and that's why we need regulation. Uh, if they didn't have the power to do damage, I'd say let them, you know, let them go ahead. But what we've seen, how much damage they can do, and that's particularly true because we know that in the end we're going to pick up the tab for the mess that they create. You, you know what an ugly, an ugly part of this, along with all the ugly parts, is, is you call this a latent scam. To me, this is what it is. It's a latent scam. It's like when the CEO of uh, a Goldman gets up and say, says, we, we, we just didn't know. You know, we just didn't see it coming. Uh, you know, it, it's apparent that the real the people did understand. I mean, obviously, Goldman Sachs knew what was coming because they were betting against themselves. They were selling this garbage, and while they were selling the garbage, they were getting rid of themselves. Uh, but, but nevertheless, when you hear the discussion, the discussion still is we didn't know. It is impossible not to have known. You had people like yourself. You had people talking about uh, 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 Krugman. You had people talking about this kind of thing for for years before before it happened. 
So, so with a straight face, how do you think they get away with that? I mean, I, I, I find it very difficult to understand because it seemed to me their job is to manage risk and assess risk, and they clearly blew it. But to go back to the observation you made, you know, normally when somebody produces a product, they stand behind it, they'll give a guarantee, uh, they might exaggerate the virtues. But the story you just told about Goldman Sachs, uh, they were selling a product and they said, we think we're selling a dog, so much so that we're going to bet against it. Now, do you think they disclosed that to the people mm. they were selling it to? Mm. It's, it's, of course not. It's obscene. It's obscene. Uh, and, and it was a real example of uh, conflict of interest, uh, uh, dishonesty, you might say. Well, no, uh, it, it really – I think back, Joe, I think back. I handled the, the tobacco litigation here in America. I handled uh, that – part of that class action. And I remembered, uh, I remember the CEOs of the industry standing in front of Congress, and these guys looked exactly like those CEOs. These guys, when they stood up and they raised their right hand, and I'm going to tell you the truth, I, I, it was like deja vu to me as I was watching that. Uh, and, and so I'm not moved by the idea that uh, they just didn't know. But let me ask you this. I'm, 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 I'm curious. Have you seen in the last couple of decades a, 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 a what I call a a quick profit mentality in CEOs and all of these companies. In other words, they, they're, not, they're, they're not there to build an institution of 20 years or 25 years. They're moving through uh, to the highest bidder three- to five-year plans. Yeah, that, that is a, a real problem, This what I call the short-sightedness uh, of the markets. In fact, I was testifying in Congress on Friday, and, and that issue came up repeatedly. I think it also has something to do with the incentive structures. They're rewarded on the basis of, many of the executives are rewarded on the basis of stock options. So what they want is the stocks to go up as quickly as possible. And the way you do that is short-sighted behavior. The incentive structures encourage short-sighted behavior and, in the case of banks, excessive risk-taking. Uh, you know, and the one thing that economists agree on, we don't agree about a lot, but one thing that we do agree on is incentives matter. And you look at the incentive structures, they encourage the kind of behavior that we saw, a kind of behavior that is not good for the long-run prosperity of America and helps explain how we got into the current mess. Joe, I know this is a this is a, a broad question, but I mean, when you think back, do you think of some of the early signs of of all of this getting ready to melt down as it did? Do you, what, in other words, if you were to say, "Gee, you know, uh, it, it crossed my mind that there there might be something wrong here," what what would it, what would those signs be? What were the well, things? Well, I I started uh, talking about the economy going into these problems uh, as early as uh, 2005, right. uh, 2006. Yeah. By 2007, I was saying, "Boy, I've been predicting these problems. Maybe, you know, maybe I'm wrong, but maybe." And I thought more likely. Because the problems, uh, we haven't done anything about them. When the crash comes, it's going to be all the bigger. The, the obvious sign was the housing bubble. The fact was that the housing prices were going up and up, and most Americans were seeing their income adjusted for inflation going down. And you don't have to be a genius to say, you know, that can't continue. That's not sustainable. I have a list of your predictions. They were actually incredible, and they did start as early as 2004, 2005, actually. And I'm wondering the frustration you must have felt when you were saying, listen to me, please listen to what I'm saying, and it fell on deaf ears. Well, it was frustrating, and, and I just gave you one. Let me give you another one. During this period of so-called recovery from the 2001 recession, as much as three-fourths of the growth was related to real estate, either new construction or people taking money out of their houses. Now, that's not a balanced economy, and that was not sustainable, and, and something that's not sustainable like that won't be sustained, and it wasn't. So, you know, I gave a lot of speeches. Uh, I talked about it. Uh, you know, I, 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 you say I, I, I put myself on the line on these issues. There were a few others that were doing the same. We used to get together quite often and, and bemoan the fact that what can we do to make, make people listen? Because if we, the longer this goes on, uh, the higher the bubble, the greater the fall. 
Hi, everyone. Now, running this podcast is an absolute passion of mine that I've been pursuing for years. But, of course, everyone understands that it takes a little bit of money to get along in this world, and that's where the members come in. Members sign up and donate as little as $5 a month, which allows me to pump out 10 episodes per month now. So while you're thinking about that and rationalizing that little expense, just realize it breaks down to only 50 cents per episode, and it's even less if you sign up for a full year. And beyond that, in return, you get access to a set of members-only raw feeds, and these deliver audio plus video clips from the show, as well as a separate feed just for bonus content that would otherwise end up on the cutting room floor. So for details, please visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Thanks for your support. Industry executive tried multiple times to blow the whistle on Bernie Madoff between 2000 and 2008. His book is called No One Would Listen, a true financial thriller. Please welcome to the show, Harry Markopoulos. So it's very nice to see you. Uh, the book is called No One Would Listen. Uh, in, in 2000, your boss asked you to look into this Madoff fund. Because it was so successful, he wanted to see, is there anything we could do to, to, to replicate that? That's right. And you, you took a look at his numbers and found what and how quickly? Took five minutes at the strategy description. It was bogus, couldn't earn money. 45 degree performance line, that comes from geometry class, it doesn't come from finance. Nothing goes up, up and away like that. 96% of the months were positive. That'd be like a baseball player batting 960 and us not suspecting cheating immediately. So you saw this in 2000, and you wrote a memo to the SEC under the title, The World's Largest Hedge Fund is a Fraud. I was a little bit subtle there, yes. Very subtle. And did they write you back? I didn't even get a thank you. They didn't even write you a letter? I don't think they understood a word past hello. Really? That's true. Do you think they didn't read it? I don't know that they could read it. That takes intelligence. So, is the SEC... <laughs> the audience is like an ultimate fighting match now. They want to see you, they want to see you in the octagon with the SEC. Um, isn't what you were finding out about uh, Madoff exactly what the SEC would be tasked with finding? That's their mission statement to protect investors, yes, sir. Sir? Thank you. <laughs> what possible reason, and have you met any of these guys, what po have they ever given you a reason as to why? How, how many of these types of letters did you send them? It was too many to count. It was repeated over a period of eight and a half years, and the warnings got progressively more dire, more serious, more evidence was accumulated. I had a team tracking Madoff across two continents. And we were but you're just some guy. You're not, you don't work for Madoff. You're not like, are you like the MacGyver of finance? Are you, you're, you're, you're just a guy. I recruited a team of three others. We thought it was important to our nation to stand up and defend what we believed in. We believed in our capital markets and we believed in this country's reputation. Well, there's your mistake. <laughs> Admittedly, the conscience has held me back on Wall Street. That's what I'm talking about. Uh, so have you ever, you, you went to testify in front of Congress. Twice. And what did they say to you? They were very angry at the SEC. They were very thankful for me. They thanked me for my team and my service. Oh, that's, that's great. So things are different now. Things have changed. No, they still have all the same people there. <laughs> they haven't fired anybody. Oh that's the problem. God. So there is absolutely zero accountability in the world. Is it that the SEC is overmatched? Is it that they are, it's an inside job? What, what, is, what is the reality? Uh, one is the the institution is captive to the industry it's supposed to regulate. They work for Wall Street, not for us investors. And number two, they're over-lawyered. Lawyers can never chase finance people. We're too, we'll outsmart them every time. Right. But not, lawyers can be very smart. You're not suggesting that all lawyers are, are dumb. I'm trying to help you. <laughs> you're not, you're suggesting that, that in finance they don't have the expertise. We should hire finance people. What about you? run the SEC. Oh, I would love to get in there. I'd like to fire most of their staff on day one. Right. <laughs> and replace them with finance people. Now, why don't they get finance people? Why do they get lawyers? Because lawyers won't catch any of the financial crimes, and that's the whole point. Oh, so it is a purposeful move. If they really want to be purposeful, why not hire 
pastry chefs. Why not, why not completely hire people that have no sense of finance? Well, they would have a conscience. That would be a pastry chef. Uh, that would right. be uh, different. You are an angry dude. <laughs> You're just ripping these guys left and right. Is that, in 2000, were you angry or this journey has just so worn down your soul? Like, what's the, because you, you literally feel like you would punch them. I am so angry, I can't tell you how angry I am, but I would like to be the chair just for a day so I could fire those people. Right, right, right. Well, I can see you're angry, and, and as they say in The Incredible Hulk, I don't think we'd like you when you're angry because <laughs> the biceps bulge out and the whole thing. Uh, what now, uh, uh, if the SEC is in bed with Wall Street and no one has been fired, although clearly this was an enormous uh, uh, mistake, who can affect change? What would be the organization? Would it have to be Congress? No, I think it's going to have to be the American people. You can't trust either party. I think we have to vote them both out of office somehow. But we don't, I was going to say, we don't vote for the SEC and we don't vote for Wall Street. So it's, our, our, would the suggestion be should we pull all of our money and, and uh, stick it under mattresses? Like what, what would be the way that people could express their dissatisfaction? I think it's only at the polls, and if some company commits a wrongdoing, just pull your money from them and go with the honest guys. And that would leave a small percentage of people to who, invest who with. Who are, 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 are the investment firms on Wall Street? You know, we hear all this about Goldman Sachs. Are these people dishonest, or are they using the rules to their advantage? Are they playing to the, the uh, outer rim of the law, or are they truly dishonest? They play to the outer rim of the law. I wouldn't say they're dishonest. They're going to look for every, every rat hole, and they're going to go down it. Every rat hole. <laughs> you're not looking to be in this industry, are you? You're not. No, no I'm not going back. You're kind of done with this, aren't you? I am you? done with it. I love this. It's like a guy, you've just had it. It's like Bruce Dern at the end of uh, the movie where he just takes off his clothes and walks into the ocean. You're like, <laughs> I don't care anymore. Um, it's an incredible story. Are, w did you feel uh, under threat during this? Yes, Manoff would have had me killed if he would have figured out I had a team tracking him across two continents. That, money, that was clear. He had destroyed thousands of families already. One more wasn't going to make a difference to that man. He's a sociopath. He... You're ooing that Madoff is a sociopath? I'd be hard-pressed to make the argument that he isn't. Um, well, but now, now that he's in jail, you're all right. He has a lot to worry from. He stole from all the wrong people across yeah, the world. so he's in trouble, but not you. He needed the safety of a prison cell. That's why he turned himself in. Really? Yes. So he was worried. He could, no place to run or hide. Right. And so now he's, he stays in there. And do you think he's doing any sort of uh, Ponzi scheme with cigarettes while he's in prison? Or... Uh, I think he probably has a very active social life. All right. That's all. <laughs> no one would listen is on the bookshelves now. Tragedy in West Virginia, mind blast killing uh, 25. As we go to air here, it might uh, go up to 29, the death toll, because there are four that are missing, and uh, that situation is not very hopeful. There was a massive mind blast uh, at Ma Massey Energy Company's Upper Big Branch Mine, uh, and they do a hell of a lot of coal mining there, and uh, they take uh, in... They take out 2.2 billion tons of coal reserves from southern West Virginia, eastern Kentucky, uh, Virginia, and Tennessee, and they, of course, make a lot of money doing so. Um, now, here's uh, the real tragic part of this. Could this have been avoided, of course, is the question that everybody asks. In this case, there seems to be a fairly clear answer, yes. Uh, just last month, there was 57 uh, regulations that they were in violation of this mine. Uh, in fact, all last year they were fined $382,000 for all of the uh, violations of safety, etc. One of the things that they 
were not doing was properly ventilating the mine. Now, a lot of uh, methane gas builds up in the mine and has to be released. And if it's not released properly with the uh, regulation fans, etc., this is the great advancement we had in coal mining and in different kinds of mining, is that we got the technology that we could release the gas properly so less people would die. Now, if you don't do that, then every once in a while, a mine explodes, and 25 or 29 people die. And, you know, this happened before in Sago. Uh, it was at different circumstances, but again, a company that did not follow the regulations, that had a dangerous situation on the ground, that ignored the regulators, and of course, at that time, the Bush administration totally allowed them to ignore the regulators. Some of the fines for the Sago disaster, the company that created the Sago disaster, were comically low. And I remember we did a story back then where we talked about how endangering someone's life in a mine sometimes got you a fine as low as $50. But if you showed Janet Jackson's nipple on air for half a second, that cost $500,000. And we talked about how the priorities of our government and of our society is out of whack. Both those things were happening at the same time then. And at the time, we said, hey, mines are very dangerous. You might want to regulate them to make sure that they don't blow up or cave in, etc." Look, for all those Republicans that, and libertarians that border on anarchy, that say, oh, government sucks at everything. We shouldn't have government doing anything. Well, how do you explain this? I mean, this is exactly what we need the government to do. And I, I guarantee you the Fox News answer will be, no, no, the problem was too much regulation. If you just let the mining companies uh, take the, you know, the material out of the mountains any way they like, I bet it'd be safer. Really? Uh, actually, we have history on that because we did mining in this country for a very long time, and it was not safer when we let them regulate themselves. It was much, much less safe. Okay, and now we also had technological developments, to be fair, that made it safer. But you know who de demanded that we put that in there, uh, that we put it in all the mines? The government did, to protect the lives of those people. You know what they used to do in Sacramento, in gold mining? The company knew that there was a part of the mine uh, that if you did the mining there, the little, basically, to simplify, shards of glass almost, would get into your lungs, and you'd die within three years. Everybody that mined that part of the mine died in three years, okay? And that's where the word gold diggers comes from, because there would be women that would come into the area and marry these guys, knowing that they would die, and then they'd take their, get all their money. Now, why were they getting, uh, why did they have all that money? Because they were paid seven times more than the guys that weren't going to die, that were working in the other part of the mine, in the safer part of the mine. But what good did that money do them? So how did the market fix it? Did it fix it by itself, by saying, hey, you know what, uh, let's make sure these workers don't die? No, it just paid them a little more and didn't give a rat's ass that they died. The way it got fixed is when the government came in and said, you can't keep killing these workers, okay? You have to find a way to do this safely, otherwise you're not going to be allowed to do it. And the more we get away from that, and the more we assume that amoral capitalist companies will, out of the goodness of their hearts, protect their workers or do right by society in any way, the more people are, suffer, whether it's the banks that destroyed the global economy, or in this case, when people literally die. We can't have it. We've got to fix it. And it's incumbent now upon the Obama administration to make sure that this doesn't happen again. They have to be a lot tighter with their regulations, because people's lives are on the line here. Now, it's not to say that regulation is always the right thing. Let's not be comical about this. It's not a black and white issue. Could there be too much regulation in the field? Of course there could be. Are we there with mining? No, and hell no. How do I know? People keep dying, <laughs> and mines keep exploding. I know I'm making it overly simple there, but uh, the other way I know is because they, these are very important safety violations that they ignore because they don't get fined that much. They make a lot more from the mining. They make a lot more from ignoring those violations and those fines than they do uh, by fixing the problems. And that's part and parcel of exactly why this tragedy happened.
Thanks for listening, everyone. So the exciting news of the day is that I actually received my real podcast awards trophy today. And so in order to at least in part share it with you guys, I took a picture of it and added it as the image for this chapter of the show. So if you're listening to the show on the enhanced version, that would be like either on um, iTunes or on an iPod or iPhone or anything like that, uh, you should be able to look at your device and see it in all of its glory. Um, funny enough, it, it's, it's a nice-looking trophy. It's not very photogenic, though, and only because it's, uh, it's perfectly clear with white writing, so the only way to take a picture of it without it becoming, you know, essentially invisible, you can just you can see right through it. As so, I I, I put up a nice, uh, a light blue spiral notebook behind it to uh, to nicely frame it, so you can kind of see what it looks like. So now, of course, since this occasion has uh, presented itself, I just wanted to thank everyone again who voted way back in like August through December. Or something crazy like that. There's really long voting period. Um, well, you know, first the nomination period, then voting for the podcast awards last year. So you know, huge thanks to everyone who did that. Um, and and you know, welcome. I think it, just to, to put a finer point on it, for all of you who voted, I think you've got a, a pretty decent group of people who have you to thank for the fact that they're now listeners. Because I think a, kind of a lot of people found the show through the podcast awards. So on behalf of all the people who found the show through the podcast awards, I will uh, pass on their thanks to all of you who voted. For those of you who were around at the time, you know, there's no reason for you to remember this, but you may recall once I say it again, uh, I wasn't available to be uh, live on the call when they, they did like a live webcast of the awards ceremony. You know, it, really, really big air quotes around uh, se- around the word ceremony there. But, um, you know, I, I was actually, it was in, in December, and that was when I was in Copenhagen for the climate conference, the International Climate Conference in Copenhagen. So I wasn't able to make it live. And because I knew, you know, just to add insult to injury, because I knew I wasn't going to be able to be live Plus, I was convinced I wasn't going to win anyways. I didn't read the instructional email very closely. Uh, so, you know, the awards people sent out an email saying, okay, the ceremony is happening. This is how you participate. This is how you connect live. And um, and be sure to send us written details about the show so that if you win, we can, you know, read your description of the show and, and kind of sing your praises and since I knew I wasn't going to be live, I didn't read the email about how to connect live very closely. And then I completely missed the part about please send in details of the show. So instead of, you know, when he announced the show had won, instead of him being able to say, Best of the Left was founded in January 2006 by Jay Tomlinson and and he enjoys spending, you know, mind-numbing hours listening to all kinds of media to find those diamonds in the rough and bring them to his audience who who appreciate his, you know, great ability to to get to the core of an issue, create a show that's incredibly dense with information but humorous at the same time, and edited uh, beautifully with very well-chosen music. And, you know, and so I, I could have written something like that and he could have talked about the show. Instead, it was it was kind of like listening to uh, like a fortune teller when, when, you know, because they're not really telling anyone's fortune. So so they're like, uh, oh, so I I see you've come to a fortune teller. I, I sense that you're curious about the future. You know, it was that sort of thing. It's like, well, so the best of the left, I'm, I, you know, it, it, it's a great show. And, um, you know, ha- has a big following, <laughs> you know, yeah, the, the podcast just won an award based on voting of the audience. Yeah, I'm, you know, my guess is it has a big following. So it was, it was really unfortunate, kind of dropped the ball on that, you know, and that was totally my fault uh, for uh, for dropping that particular ball. But now that it's, you know, since it took, you know, about four months or so for the for the trophy to arrive and, and for me to be telling this story, um, of course, that means there's only a few more months to go before nominations will start up again <laughs> so uh i'm certainly excited about uh, when that happens and i'll be calling on all of you again to uh, to help support the show and you know we'll go for two in a row we'll, we'll see how that goes 
Now, I just need to take a minute to share with you a fundamental truth of podcasting. Having, having been a podcaster for a little more than four years now, I understand it as an inevitability that problems will arise, uh, glitches will happen, uh, you know, something unforeseen will take place, and that will cause one of any number of things to go wrong that is noticeable to you, the listeners. And, um, you know, some things go unnoticed, which I love. Uh, I, I don't like having to fix problems, but uh, if I can fix a problem without you guys ever knowing that it was there, that's that's a bonus. Uh, sometimes, however, fixing problems in the podcast, glitches in the feed, cause what, uh, I don't know what it's officially called, I call it a, a giant refresh of the podcast feed, and what that'll do is you will notice that when you um, update the podcast feed as you would normally do, you know, your computer will attempt to download every single show in the archives. And so I've, I, you know, th th it's happened before and it'll happen again. And if you're subscribed to other podcasts, it'll probably happen on one of those uh, as well. And, you know, for me, it, it's something that happens maybe once a year or so. And you can kind of like, oops, you know, bummer, and then let it go because it, it's not a big deal and it doesn't happen that often. But very recently, this uh, sort of glitch happened twice in a three-day period, which I was incredibly frustrated about. After the first one, I posted just a quick little apology for it on the Facebook page, you know, just so people who, uh, you know, who are like more intimately connected with the show would, would just get a little notice about what was going on so that they knew that the problem wasn't on their end and, you know, and everyone else would have to deal with it and that's unfortunate, but it would come and go and no one would think anything of it. Since it happened twice, obviously, you know, many of you, I'm sure, started being concerned if the problem was on your end. I know, you know, I got a few emails asking if um, if I was having problems or if, if the emailer was the one who had the problem. So uh, just wanted to put out there that, no, it wasn't you. It was me. Now, just before I go, I want to thank a couple of uh, fairly new awesome members, a couple of people who've gone uh, above and beyond with their membership and signed up for a full year in advance. Huge thanks to Francisco M., who signed up back on March 6th, and Stephanie C., who signed up on April 2nd. Uh, you know, you guys already know, I, I just couldn't be doing this show without you, so it's hugely, hugely appreciated. I love every single new member that signs up, but, uh, but you know, for those of you who who go, uh, you know, above and beyond to just to support the show uh, is just really, just really incredible and, and very much appreciated. Now, I hope everyone will continue to support the show by telling everyone you know about it. Spreading the audience is is the most fundamental way anyone can help, and, and it really, really makes a difference. So thanks for helping to spread the word. You know, obviously, this is a totally grassroots show. I have no advertising budget or anything like that, so it's all, it's all based on on uh, word of mouth from you guys. Now, if you want to hear uh, from me between episodes or if you want to help spread the word online, we're uh, located both at uh, facebook.com slash best of the left and twitter.com slash best of the left, whichever you prefer. To get more details on the show, this, this episode and every episode, including links to all the sources and music used in the show, all of that is always listed on the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you 10 times a month, thanks to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Thought black and white, you took a picture that wasn't right.